The Time Traveller's Wife, first a 2003 novel, then a 2009 film, and now a 2022 Stephen Moffat HBO series. And what could be more Stephen Moffat than this? It's not just that he's adapting a novel he loves so much and so clearly influenced and echoed across his work, such as on Doctor Who. It's that the whole story and format and characters here marry up Moffat's interest in ambitious structure and writerly format tricks with his interest in sitcom hijinks, relationship comedy, sex and romance and observations on domestic living. For better or worse, this show very much feels like a culmination of his career and Moffat at his most moffiest in threading together all these big interests of his with two main characters that echo the archetypes he's been playing with since Press Gang, with relationship comedy and sitcom stylings like from his shows Coupling and Joking Apart, creative adaptation of another author's written word like in Sherlock, Jekyll, Dracula, interest and playfulness in form and structure that pervades across virtually all his work, and, of course, time travel, driving it all with the show sure to make any Doctor Who viewer connect a lot of dots on just how influential this novel was for Stephen Moffat and how deep his love runs for it. So, to talk about episode one of Moffat's adaptation of the novel today, it's going to be myself, Neo from Australia, along with my friends Ingiga and Oliver from England. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? So far, yeah. It's one episode, but I'm liking it a lot. So what exactly is this story that Moffat's adapting? Well, the Time Traveller's Wife is a 2003 novel, a debut novel, from American novelist Audrey Niffenegger, basically about a couple living a marriage out of order. The husband travels through time at unpredictable intervals. He just pops up in another time and place completely naked before eventually shifting time again. And the book mines a lot out of that premise, exploring ideas about how we are or are not different people all throughout our lives. Uh, the effects people have on each other, what it means to form yourself around or for someone, the deep connections between love and loss, how absence affects people, all those sorts of ideas and observations on love and relationships and ageing, all through that big high concept idea of a man and woman meeting themselves at different points in their lives, at different ages relative to each other, even as they ultimately marry. It's a kind of magical realism idea, a lot of character stuff is done with, but the book gets pretty specific with the timey-wimey time travel rules. So there's definitely sci-fi in there too, free will, determinism, all that genre jazz. But of course, much as Moffat adores the book, the show is of course, as befitting HBO, not just made for book readers. And so while I believe Oliver and myself have read the novel, in Giga, you have not? Yes, I have not read the book at all. I mean, I've watched Moffat's previous Doctor Who show, so that's kind of spoilers <laughs> for lots of things, but I have not read the book. Yeah, and of course, there's zero expectation that anyone watching the show would have, or, or anyone listening to this as well. It's worth making clear now from the outset that while what we're doing here is a discussion of this specific show, episode one of season one of The Time Traveller's Wife, we are going to make reference to other Stephen Moffat work, especially Doctor Who, when it's relevant. I still haven't even seen all of Stephen Moffat's work. I haven't seen Sherlock yet, so don't worry, listeners. If you don't always know the specific examples that might get raised, I don't either. The overall point is just that while this show really melds a lot of different stuff Moffat's done over his career, it's super clear that this 2003 novel influenced him a lot. Do any examples spring to mind for you two guys? From the get-go, you have a little red-headed girl running after an imaginary friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, just small things like basically his whole era. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, when he'd first read the novel, he'd just written his first episodes for Doctor Who, the Christopher Eccleston series. 
And of course, his first David Tennant episode, The Girl in the Fireplace, is really similar to The Time Traveler's Wife through having two sort of romantically entwined characters meet each other out of order. And especially that the handsome, confident time traveler type sort of imprints himself on a girl in her childhood. And she she subsequently arguably forms herself around him in a knotty way. We're definitely getting to that topic eventually. But yes, suffice to say, this is a case of a writer adapting a work that's had a big influence on them for basically 20 years. In fact, the novelist's second novel had a character watching that David Tennant Girl in the Fireplace episode. So that mutual respect between Moffat and the novelist sprung up pretty early. And of course, Moffat eventually wrote a literal Time Traveler's Wife tale through the River Song Doctor's Wife character. And he did a lot of Time Traveler imprinting on a young girl with the red-headed Amelia Pond character that Gig mentioned. There are all sorts of other links too. We could be here all day talking about that. And it's little wonder because this book was a real, it was a real book club favourite, I know. Uh, had lots of word of mouth and readership. Lots of praise for its novelty and its concept. Its emotional journeys really resonated for some people. But others found it clunky, trite, kind of a gender essentialist, and even outright alarming, creepy, disgusting. And that's the other thing I really want to make clear here at the start. We will be discussing the actual events of this first episode in our discussion here. This isn't a spoiler-free impressions of episode one. We'll talk through the actual events of episode one, but without spoiling things from later into the novel or the series. That said, obviously the novel, the film, and now the show raise serious concerns on some topics, most prominently the relationship or adjacency or depiction, depending on your perspective, I suppose, of grooming, or at least a child forming themselves up around, in the story's terms, an older person, and what it might mean for a story to be doing that. We'll definitely get into that topic eventually and have a deservingly big proper serious conversation about it, but this is episode one. So we're not going to be doing it here. We'll do it in a later discussion when it's more clear what the story is doing and what the stances of the creators behind it may be. We're not ignoring it. We're just waiting for when we can have the most fruitful conversation on it this season. And for this discussion, we're going to have the more fruitful conversations we can have about this first episode. (laughs) And so coming off that kind of grim note, why don't we hear in Moffat's own words what drove him to adapt this story? Actually, before we hear Moffat say why he's adapting this story, why do you guys think he's adapting this? What do you think drove him to adapt this novel now? I think it's you could view it as the telos of his career, or you could view it as a backslide for his career. But one way or another, he's been rewriting bits of this story for years and years. So this is his chance to finally just do it without any of the, I guess, intermittent like other elements intruding on it. Yeah. feels like that it feels a bit liberated um yeah it's also it's such a natural fit for tv because it's episodic um it's the the book is not episodic but it, it's episodic it has episodes of meetings and encounters and how they relate to things across time the whole structure of it scenically the really interesting thing about this is that the scene by scene structure bleeding into the next scene and the connections between each scene are time travel, but also stories within stories and flashbacks that lead to time travel through the present. It's all um, very televisual in the way that it's structured, which I think is quite yes, natural. It's, great. it's a great opportunity for Moffat to do what he loves, which is be very clever. <laughs> <laughs> On that note of what he loves, let's hear him himself say why he's adapting it. Tell us what motivated you to adapt The Time Traveller's Wife. 
Well, just the fact that I love the book. I mean, that, there's no point in adapting something you you hate, otherwise you'll uh, you'll be fighting it all the time. I just love the book, and when you when you love something, you you kind of want to explain why and how. Yeah. Despite the fantastical setting of it and the fantastical idea of it, this brilliant time travel idea, it's actually about a relationship. That's what it's about. It's not about time travel. Time travel just gets in the way, or time travel is the prism through which we see a normal, happy relationship. We don't do a lot of those in fiction. You know, happy relationships end at the altar and start again if there's a divorce or a death. We don't do the bit that we all live through. You know, years of being perfectly happy with each other. That sort of doesn't happen, does it? Uh, but she finds a way to make that interesting by reminding you that love and loss are linked to each other. Love means loss and the time travel element never allows our heroes to forget that there's, the end is in sight. And that's true for all of us, but, uh, but they are constantly reminded of it. So I think, I think because you can relate to it, because you can ground yourself in that relationship. Say, um, it's an incredibly effective little, I guess, narrative device, metaphor, um, but not quite, um, of just taking, taking a relationship and putting it through the prism of time travel. Yeah. But it's just an absolutely fantastic idea. Um, that does so many things. It works on so many levels. There's some slightly um, obvious lines in this episode. I can't remember exactly what it is, but something like um, uh, to what our lives are intertwined inextricably forever. And he's like, yeah, it's called marriage. Yeah. You know, there's lots of little bits like that um, going, this is an extraordinary re relationship, but the way in which it's extraordinary is ordinary. It's... It's all heightened versions of real things. The whole thing of meeting and of grooming, but the whole thing of meeting your future husband when you're a kid is sort of a simulation of that feeling of fate, of of falling so deeply in love with someone you can't imagine not ever having been with them. It's a simulation of that, and it's not an unproblematic simulation of that. That that's the emotion it's capturing metaphorically. The line you mentioned earlier, I think it's so interesting. It's this exchange that Henry and Claire have where it's said that I grew up waiting for you, longing for you. I formed myself around you, the idea of you, and you're an arsehole. And that's what she's resenting and struggling with dealing with there. So for Claire, she met Henry when she was a child. And so she feels imprinted on by him in that way is what she's expressing and then for henry who's of course met when he first met claire claire had more knowledge of the relationship and everything than him and he says the man you formed yourself around shock twist formed himself around you and then we get the exchange that's fucked up so fucked up it has a name marriage two people trying to be the person the other one already thinks they are love basically which is such a big Moffaty, such a huge concept and such a grounded concept in how relationships work or how he perceives relationships and identity working that's being done in such a high concept, interesting way through the show. There's, there's obviously a real adjacent aspect to grooming because of how we're getting this when he's in his 40s and she's a child. And for him, Moffat, I'll go into this more later with his quotes, but he characterizes it as Henry fell in love with Claire when he met her as an adult, you know, in that library. So he's fallen in love with this woman as an adult and he loves adult Claire. 
it's not his fault that his time travel craziness made him meet Claire as a child after, and that was the first introduction for her. I think it'll make more sense to really delve into the grooming discussion in later episodes because there's going to be more material to have a better, more rounded conversation about that because it's obviously a conversation that's got to be had. But for now, I'm kind of interested what the TV viewer among us who doesn't know how all of this plays out, like Oliver and I do, thinks of all that. What do you think of all that, Gig? Um, well, I guess it's really um, fundamentally at the end of the day because it all revolves around this um predetermination idea and stuff happening just because the author has willed it to happen pretty much it always it's always the way with causal loop storylines you know characters who are pretty much locked into doing one specific set of things by fate and paradoxes and that's just how time has spooled itself out i guess to a certain extent it strips the characters of the ability and thus the responsibility to like i guess change the future in any particular way um in a way when moffat wrote um forest of the dead and the doctor was about to you know the doctor said well i can can die i can sacrifice myself instead of you and time can be rewritten when he came up with that time can be rewritten thing he was reintroducing that idea of free will so the doctor and river they have the option to change the future and change what happens but they don't want to because they value what they have so much right whereas when you have a setup like this (laughs) where like older henry has to like lay the groundwork for young claire to fall in love with him because that's their future marriage and blah 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 blah. it's sort of like on one hand it's like it's unfair because claire doesn't really get to have her own i guess self-willed life in any particular way but at the same time it's like it's unfair because it's this is the construct that the author has created and put them in so it's sort of like it's it, it sort of transcends the idea of responsibility on a human level and just because i i feel like we're getting into stuff that we'll just end up talking about a lot more in future episodes but really it's it's as a metaphor goes as metaphors go rather it's one that kind of sort of trivializes the idea of being able to morally judge ethically whatever the characters are doing i feel like the baseline just for now for episode one and you know a bit onward is the novelist audrey niffenegger and stephen moffat see it in that kind of metaphorical um, construct way that Gig is talking about. They're not making a commentary on grooming, you know, like with what we're seeing now. It'll make more sense for us as an audience to discuss that later. But the idea right now is, as they're saying, like in Moffat's word, he says, I mean, that's not what the story is in the book or the film or the TV show. He's married to her. He meets her as an adult. He falls in love with her. He takes her to the altar. He gets married to her. And then he's flung back in time through no fault of his own and is confronted with the childhood version of the woman he already loves. And even more so in the TV show version, he absolutely makes it clear he's just a friend and he makes the absolute rule that he will never reveal who he is in her future. The version of Henry that goes back in time, the grown up version, he's a very responsible man. So he has tremendously strict rules about this. If one of them changes the other, Claire changes Henry. Claire is exactly the same person as a little girl as she is when you see her in her 70s. Exactly the same person. Henry flows round Claire like a river round a rock. He's just, uh, he, he makes himself the man she wants him to be because he loves her. It's interesting, given within this episode, we have a line that basically makes a gag of the grooming yes. thing, which and I assume that's Moffat's invention. And yes. it's, so it does seem like the sort of thing he'd invent because he seems to have a trouble with taking things seriously. In fact, he wrote an entire show about his own inability to take things seriously. And I think that's the, that's kind of the point when you can start to uh, start to maybe um, 
view Moffat a bit dimly in terms of making that kind of thing into a joke. It's like, you, you don't really need to. Like, come on, please. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a reasonable... We'll get into... We're, we're, we're doing enough talking around the grooming thing. Suffice to say, we'll get into the actual discussion later. Baseline for now is the novelist and the showrunner don't humour it. Yeah, not to dwell on the grooming thing, but I think... Um... Stories like River and Amy's story are very conscious of the, he wouldn't use the term grooming, but the, the traumatic influence of, in that case, the Doctor over characters' childhoods. And that it, it makes some connection between the idea of time travel determining your future, knowing your future because of time travel, and um, sort of losing your agency because of that trauma, right? Um uh, Amy and River both reclaim their agency. You know the end of Flesh and Stone where Amy jumps the Doctor and tries to, you know, bang him, have a one-night stand because she's been so imprinted on him and the Doctor's like, no, 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 and just shoves her into the TARDIS and that gets shut down. Well, if you imagine that scene had played out but they'd actually had sex and there was really romantic music playing over it, that would be this episode, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Time travel as well. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's also framed as him being a prick for that. Yeah. Um, it's i i think okay i've got a question is this confusing to most audiences well just to watch like the experience of watching it like yeah the episode the structure of it the way it works i mean i don't know i haven't looked at what other people are saying but i feel like moffat has um done his best to make it easy to follow and obviously the captions on screen <laughs> indicating like what age everyone is at every time probably helps as well but at the same time you've also got you know, you've got wig henry you've got short-haired henry you've got kid henry it's you can follow the way the characters like are distinguished from versions of themselves i think i don't think it's too hard so far most complaints i've seen about the show are about the big issues we were touching on and we'll talk more about later and the there's a lot of adjectives I could use. The dialogue, basically, which a lot of it is original, but it's very much in the vein of what the novelist was doing, which are these really poetic statements about love and, you know, big humany womany things in a very kind of heightened style, which is how Moffat writes and it's how the novelist writes. And it's a real, they're doing it big here for sure. And that doesn't work for a lot of people. Uh, but if you love you know, those really heightened poetic lines on Doctor Who and you don't mind, real people don't talk like that, then the dialogue probably will work for you some of the time. I think um, just in terms of being able to follow it, I noticed that Moffat has been very front and centre with theme in this episode. Like, yes. Whereas with stuff, something like Dracula episode three, for example, kind of people rage at that because Dracula has an oh, iPad or whatever. And they sort of don't really pay attention to like the, the big thematic exploration going on in that episode. I think with an episode like this, Moffat is so front and centre with theme, saying stuff like, oh, wow, this whole thing's just a metaphor for marriage and love, isn't it? Like just putting it all on the table. Like how can you, how can you possibly miss the point of this when it's so like shoved in your face? I think that kind of, I think it will be very easy to follow in that sense. I think stripping out the genre, I mean, it's still, it's a time travel thing, but stripping out the genre in a way, I think is what is making this interesting for me, is it's, it's Doctor Who without monsters, it's, it's just nailing down and focusing on the, the characters. I have to say, Gig said shoving in the face, and Oliver said stripping out. I feel like it's worthy of comment, the whole naked conceit here, especially how it's realised in live action uh, with an actual actor. 
and this is an HBO show, of course. This isn't one of Moffat's British BBC shows. Uh, what did you guys make of all the nudity? Um, do you, do you, uh, <laughs> what kind of uh, comments would you think would be appropriate here? <laughs> keeping it PG-13. Go for, go for it. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really like. I don't really have anything to say, honestly. Like, obviously, he's he's very pretty, <laughs> and like, I guess it's nice to be watching a Moffat thing where it's like the the guy who's um objectified. <laughs> so that's that's a refreshing change. Um, yeah, I, it, I mean, it's part of the story. Like, it's yeah. I don't know. Like, what else can you say, really? It's straight from the book. Uh, in Moffat's own words, the joke comes from the book. He's just naked every time he times travel. That's how it works. He can't even keep a filling in. Indeed. Why wouldn't that be the case? It's actually quite rational. It's not to my taste, but I am sure it will be to a lot of people. I got rather depressed about seeing endless dailies of Theo James running around naked. Moffat's words. It's kind of like he's <laughs> it's kind of like he's been reborn, isn't it, every time. So he's yeah. just you know, spat out into the world with nothing not not even a shirt on his back. It's like the Terminator as well. I think it makes sense as a time travel thing. And also it makes sense as a Moffat thing. And you look at his earlier like sex comedies and this just links into it so naturally. Uh, and of course, it's just good TV. Um, it's, you know, it's a big visual. It either works as a visual gag or as a visual hook for people. Uh, it's dramatic. It's exciting. It's a fun little aspect of the show. I think, and it yeah, it feels appropriately timey wimey as well as lurid. I think, and it you know it gives him something to do. Uh, it means that every time he appears somewhere, it's instantly interesting. There's something immediately yeah, yeah. to do. It gives some flesh, some meat to the story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. Why, why? I also yeah. think Moffat. I also think Moffat relishes writing the kind of swaggering badass character, you know, who beats people up and quips about it. You know, oh, like sure. like the kind of Jekyll, like also maybe Dracula a bit, and the Doctor, of course, and Sherlock a yeah. little bit as well. Like he he loves that stuff. Just giving having a character who just kind of barges in and like is not necessarily the most morally um uh respectable or whatever, but who just owns every room he goes into. I really love that about Henry is that Claire is right. He is an arsehole, at least in his 20s. He's like, he's not a despicable man, but he's he's a bit of a prick. And I love that he feels really in the vein of, I thought of Mark from Joking Apart, this mm-hmm. great Moffat show that's quite underseen, but I think is, is, is fantastic, where he's a complete mess uh, and he's very funny. Um, and so he's very good and disarming at a lot of things, but he's just a total fucking mess and doesn't know who he is, at least in his 20s. And he's a prick to people, but it's with such moffety dialogue that you've got to love him because not, not many, not, it's difficult to write a roguish character where they're both a prick, but you truly like them in, in spite of that and kind of because of that. But Moffat is so good at dialogue like this that it works really well for me. And the actor who I didn't really know much before of, besides him having a lot of people really into him, um, I thought did really well. He did that classic British actor trying to do an American accent where they go really gravelly and like Hugh Laurie's house and Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange do like the exact same voice. But yeah, uh, he, he was he was working for me. I could totally see why someone would fall in love with him, and I liked how he navigated the different henry's of the different times i know he said um it was like a rule of the direction of the show that he never had to shoot separate time henry's in the same day he would always have days 
locked in as I'm 20s Henry this day of filming. I'm 40s Henry the day this film of filming. Theo, was it ever confusing when you're on the set and you have to decide what, and they have to tell you which age you are? <laughs> yeah, it was it was very confusing continuously. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, luckily I was able to, we had a rule which meant that um, one day I would film one age and the next day would be another age. So uh, b- in, uh, other than a few days, I basically was able to do that, which helped a lot because if you're kind of jumping around in ages in the same day, it's going to be a complete head fuck um but but yeah it was something that i had to keep reminding myself of where i am who i am what age i am where i'm going and where i've been because the story is you know not only do you shoot it out of order but the story is completely out of order so it was complicated the show wasn't filmed in order like feels stupid to say because like there's no there is no order there is no way you could film it in order what order are we talking about but really difficult job for both actors. I mean, especially having to sell that fucking wig, like, (laughs) unenviable. That too, too. yeah. I hate to bring in my own shit, but um, I've, uh, for the last few productions I've I've written, I've had to um, make an actual version of the script for what the film is going to be, and then a second version for the actors to go scene by scene, you know, reconstructing sequences because they're telling stories um out of order uh because a film i'm working on at the moment is well it's three timelines in the same man's life actually so it's very um time traveler's wife but there it's just more i feedback from actors is they just much rather having a continuity of character and not having to jump back and forth wildly um between different versions of the yeah. character i think that self-interaction is so interesting we'll see i'm excited for gig to see what's coming in the show because man this actor is going to continue to be really challenged by the complexity of what he's going to have to do but that's so exciting and this is the perfect writer for it like you go back and you look at the intricacy of the sitcom setups moffat did in shows like press gang but especially joking apart and coupling and the complexity is what makes the humor so fascinating and so great is that you're impressed and your brain is kind of tickled as well as you're being really humored by how funny the stuff is going. And he does such a good job. He's actually complicating bits of the book here because this episode adapts uh, the prologue of the book, the first three chapters of the book and a bit of chapter four of the book. Uh, but it's doing it in such a way where it's really kind of folding the scenes into themselves and increasing the complexity and making it timier, wimier even really it's, it's it feels really deft and it feels really impressive and he does such a good job with like i feel like his career has been tra- i've been training for this basically is how he's upped his skills in time travel storytelling and intricate like sex comedy sitcom setups as complex as possible this show just feels like the perfect marriage of those ideas to me and that's that's my favorite thing about it is mixing up all these things moffat loves and is good at it's time farce yeah you notice that in this episode, there are two kinds of transition. There's the kind where we follow like a character directly. Okay, let me, let me, let me um, rephrase that. There are two kinds of time transition. Because there's one where we follow Henry directly traveling from one time period to another. And then there's time where Moffat kind of cheats. So like, um, child, I think child Claire asks adult Henry, like, oh, well, 
what what happened to you or whatever blah 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 what, what went on and then we basically start going straight into a flashback of kid henry and that's kind of the yeah. cheat transition but like because that little um that little bit of dialogue was put in there to make that feel seamless when the child flashback eventually um loops all the way back into slightly older henry i think 20 whatever henry going getting the flowers for the day earlier in the episode yeah. it feels like that's looped the whole episode around in a lovely little bow yeah so like moffat's been very conscientious about keeping the little links in there so it never feels like we've just jumped for no reason there's always like yeah. a little bit of um linking material it's, it's very writerly yeah flashing back on certain words and then those flashbacks rounding back to actual scenes that we've seen are lovely love the shoe excellent i think what the the humany woomany bit i really like about this episode is i love this concept of you having this idolized version of the someone you love and then you get to know them a bit more or you, or you get to know a bit more of their history and this colossal disappointment as you realize this isn't a great person or even just this is a person this isn't the ideal mm-hmm. i've built up i feel like that's the real human thing this episode is dealing with uh in moffat's terms he says there are two versions of the story happening here one is you know a hard drinking womanizing librarian in chicago uh, who's a bit nihilistic and thinks life is unfair and he's kind of miserable. He's not having a great life. And this gorgeous woman walks up to him, clearly hugely in love with him, and says, I'm your future wife. And so that's huge and sensational and lifting for him. But for her, this man she's idolized from childhood, who's like imprinted onto here, imprinted onto her as like this model of kindness and intelligence and creativity and all that sort of thing. Presidential man, Moffat R characterizes it as the perfect dad kind of man. Such interesting phrasing he's using there. That's what she thinks Henry's going to be like when she meets him in sync. But when she meets him in sync, she meets, and Moffat says, what most women meet, a complete self-centered asshole. And Moffat says, that's what most women have to put up with. Claire is thinking, this is the this one is the best I got. Let me roll up my sleeves and rebuild him into someone else entirely. And that Claire's drive might be to remodel arsehole younger henry into the henry she wants to be married to the henry from her childhood which is the henry from his greater adulthood and so the two ideas that i think are so interesting is one this idea of your effect on people or your how you change people and you know how relationships play into that but also this kind of duality of of disappointment at getting to know someone better or kind of joy at getting to know someone in the first place, like from Henry's perspective. I think these are such it's such high concept stuff, but there are so many relatable little beats there that I think everyone could could connect with to their own lives. It's also the classic Moffat gender dynamics at work. <laughs> the of woman course, has to yeah. do the job of like turning the man into less of an arsehole, having to you know make him better. Is like the classic thing. Uh, the idea of yourself. Uh, versus the actual one you know the identity you project or you're expected to have versus your fragile human self and then fulfilling that identity because other people see it in you that's 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 doctor who not in the name of the henry yeah well that's doctor who this this whole this whole part of the episode culminates in a scene which is really similar to the culmination of peter capaldi's first 2014 episode of doctor who which ends with, uh, who wants to, gig, do you want to speak to that? 
And, and basically, <laughs> Clara has been really like worried about this new doctor she's met, and she's just like, "What the fuck's going on? I have to leave. I can't do this anymore." And she gets a phone call from the doctor she likes, who she's really used to. Basically, he's telling her like, "You know, uh, don't be scared. You know, it's still me in there. Like, please, <laughs> like, give me a chance. G- give him slash me a chance." So the the scene we get here with the two Henrys or older Henry basically meeting Claire to kind of try and try and like make her give younger him a chance it's sort of like that like even though it's technically in reverse because it's the older one kind of um making excuses for the younger one rather than the other way around it feels the same like it feels it's that same kind of scene like a guy from one period of time trying to sort of make a case for himself from other period of time so it it is like that really fascinating again like moffat just taking things like (laughs) rewriting things across his career we we could fill up hours with saying this reminds us of this Doctor Who episode because it's it's bigger than any one resemblance. It's like his writing is, it's not just. It, I don't feel like he's been formed out of this novel. Like he's talking about people forming each other around each other exactly because he was doing this kind of stuff before two thousand and three. But it is very much like he he is such is on such a similar wavelength as the novelist that it just makes so much sense for him to be adapting this because it's like it, it's playing all his notes, and it's glorious to hear him play him this loudly i guess on that self-aggrandizing note of moffat and complexity like we were talking about earlier i just (laughs) i want to read out this one incredible thing from a interview he had with cbr where the uh interviewer says in the first episode we meet multiple henry's from multiple time periods that have different appearances how crazy was it to keep track of them all the writer's room must have a board with arrows going all over the place and moffat replies there was no writer's room. Here is my rule on this. If you need to write it down, it's not a good enough idea. I always say that. Do you write down your idea, I say? If you have a good idea, do you know what you are not going to do? You are not going to forget it. Memory is a great editor, so I just keep it in my head and I am straight about it. I hate writing treatments. I loathe reading treatments. I keep it in my head. If that sounds impressive or clever, it's not your brain is a much more sophisticated recorder of information than a sheet of paper and a pencil. What do you need a whiteboard for, for goodness sake? The only things you ever write down are so dull you would otherwise forget. I mean, that's that's classic Moffat again. Just not even like stopping to account for the existence of anyone whose brain doesn't work exactly like his or has exactly the same yep. capacity for storage as his. Yep. Like, I mean, you, if you wanted to be uncharitable, you could say his refusal to write anything down could explain some of his earlier writing yeah. decisions. But you know, yeah. I don't think that's uh, what we'll be doing today. I, I'm taking this first as a personal attack on me because. One of the four walls of my bedroom is a massive whiteboard um, where I put all my all my ideas so I can keep track of them. So this is a personal attack on me, and I feel insulted. Um, but on the flip side, I entirely know what he means, because most of the work doesn't happen on the whiteboard. It happens on the way to the shops, mm-hmm. right? That's the, the RTD quote about writing. Um, it's not a job you clock in for. It just fucking takes over your brain. You're thinking about it all the time and you, you turn a corner of your brain into a little processor to just be working on this story um, in the background. 
and occasionally foreground. It's a lovely idea to have a story that is just comprised of those ideas that take hold of you and that you can't like stop thinking about. Like it's a, it's a lovely idea just to be able to write like that and just be 100% just remove anything that is not that powerful. But it's probably not how most people work at the end of the day. Right. <laughs> right. I've got something due. I've got a deadline. I need to write it down. Forgive me. I th- this this note of writing stuff down in the episode we get this really evocative idea of Claire having this diary of all the dates uh, she's met. Henry. Dates is such an interesting phrasing for uh, child Claire mm-hmm. meeting older Henry. Anyway, all the dates she's met Henry uh, b- previously, which, well, firstly, that's a really evocative, interesting idea and kind of story generating thing for his end. And secondly, this is <laughs> this is River Song's diary from Doctor yeah, Who. It's, even it's like the exact idea. So that's fun. I, I, oh, well, on that, I think... The similarities and differences with Doctor Who are so interesting. Um, Moffat says, on that note, Henry and Claire's life is not an adventure story. That's the big difference. It's a story of people trying to have a marriage, trying to be in love, trying to get home at night, trying to grasp every day of happiness they can while facing the irritant of time travel. The Doctor loves his time travel. He or she wants to run back to her TARDIS as often as possible, but Henry, he'd just rather go home to his wife. That's what he wants to do. There's a um, there's a slightly uncomfortable, but uh, you can sort of see the point it's making line about disability in the first episode of Time Traveler's Wife, where he he he, he the, the exact wording is Henry says uh, it's what's wrong with me. It's a disability, which is slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not great, but that is. Um, the fact that this is this is a um it's a condition it's something that happens to him um uh rather than a superpower yeah is very much um centered in the show this is this is this is a personal hurdle it's a physical thing that makes his emotional social life harder and that's real, isn't it? Like there are real marriages yeah. where you know the partner yeah. is, is taking care of their partner who has like you know some condition or something that something that they didn't choose that something just makes their life difficult and they still make it work. So there's something very human about it all. I, I think yeah. Well, the, the the episode ends with Claire saying, "Long ago, men went to sea and women waited for them." You know, scanning the horizon for the tiny ship. Even just a simple thing as one of the members of a marriage being away lots of the time. You know, not being at home, not being with their partner. For whatever reason, having to be away a lot, it's the most relatable thing in the world. And that's, you know, that's the basis of the whole marriage and the story really is that Henry is all the time absent from Claire's life. And this is the love and loss being the same thing thing that Moffat was talking about. And it's really interesting to explore that. What is grief, if not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, it's keying into all those house themes of, um, of of reliability the reliability yeah. of men is such an essential Moffat theme it is in the um in the ritual dynamics of straight relationships uh he views returning as something men struggle to do being there being reliant being around all the time when they're needed being able to help when asked is what men are for um and so, like I, I, I snarkily tweeted, um, 
a few days ago how excited I am for this Moffat show about the out-of-time death-cheating Superman and his complex relationship with his ordinary emotionally intelligent soulmate partner, whose fundamentally different perspectives, like opposite polarity magnets, inseparably unhealthily fuse them. Because everything he's written is that. It's all that. Yeah. It's all that. It's all that dichotomy, that that relationship, that, that very gendered relationship um, between the roles that these two different characters have, um... Uh, exemplifying different aspects of characters that bring out the um, the flaws and the strengths in the other. It's codependence. It's all about codependence and positive codependence and unhealthy codependence. Yeah, it's, uh, Moffat. Another, well, a pet thing of Moffat is this kind of gender essentialism, like we were speaking to earlier with how men are presented here. That's it's. Part of the game you get with him is this kind of normalization. Well, is that the right word? This kind of present presentation of codependence and like the roles for gender and stuff like that. Um, well, he said the word irritant earlier. We can use that here as well. Uh, why why do we indulge it? It's a good question. <laughs> I think because he writes really good episodes and we just <laughs> just go with it. I think um I think it's because the characters are good enough that you just kind of. I, I think it's easy to forgive when the characters that come out of it are so human and nuanced in themselves. If it was just a gender essentialist garbage and there wasn't like yeah. the good substance behind it, I think we'd be a lot less forgiving. Yeah. And I think it's also more than that. I think um, he writes so much about gender because he's a romantic and he writes relationships and he's straight, so he writes straight relationships mostly. And and in in any relationship, be it romantic or otherwise, you are looking for what defines these people in opposition to each other and in relation to each other. Um, and gender is a big part of that. Um, I mean, in any relationship, especially in the straight ones. Um, and, but I, I think if you look to something like Dracula, where the relationship at the center of it is gendered, but it's not romantic at all. Um, it's it's sort of vaguely romantically coded, but it's not actually a relationship. Um, but but they're each you know they're set oppositionally to each other, and uh, I think the best example is Sherlock, which um, which Neo hasn't watched. Which <laughs> oh come on, one day. Which which it turns out Sherlock isn't a romance, but um, which does the same exactly the same thing of pairing these two inseparable lead characters and defining them in opposition and relation to each other. Um, you know, Watson's, uh, Watson's strengths complement Sherlock's weaknesses as the books are, but that that's, it's the same basic idea between two men and there it's not playing so much on gender because gender isn't so much of a factor in the relationship. I think the gender essentialism is a, often problematic side effect of just really digging into what makes these two characters different to each other what what are their roles in relationship to each other how does this whole system work sometimes gender's a big part of that just don't watch only moffat stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely everything in moderation i watch some stuff without the gender essentialism as well yeah yeah, <laughs> it's I basically. I, it. Yeah on on yeah, on the romance thing. Uh, our 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 lovely showrunner here says it reminds you that tragedy 
underpins every love story and that every day is valuable. There is no such thing as happily ever after. There's happy for a bit. And then he talks a bit about how as a time traveler, Henry has to be more aware of his mortality than others. And he's thinking, how how could anyone live, you know, being more, more aware of their mortality? Oh, wait, I I know, I, I 100% know my mortality. I'm going to die eventually. Why am I not freaking out about that every day? So I think there's a lot in the story, in the book and, you know, in the show as well about, it's again, it's like that love and loss mixing, but it's also that happiness and tragedy mixing that you, the, every love story has an end, which is, you know, they either break up or one of them dies first. And so I, this, the adjacent nature of the happy stuff with the sad stuff, I think is really interesting here when you're playing around with the whole chronology of it. Yeah. It's, and they live happily, right? River song ending. River song ending. Yeah, how how does that go? It's it's what what does it say? Basically, and they lived happily ever after, and then the then the ever after like kind of fades away, and it's just they lived happily yeah. on screen. Really yeah. lovely. Something I really this is a bit of a different note, but I th- something I love in the episode is when we have twenties uh, Henry training really young Henry in the museum. I was going to ask Gig if you saw that coming. Yeah, Gig, did you see that coming? I mean, well, when he says, like, oh, a man taught me all the rules of time travel, yeah. I mean, like, it, it, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> like, yeah, I was gonna, come on, you know. It seems it. Because it is, it's still played as a little bit of a reveal. It's kind of a, a little, maybe a small surprise to Henry, at, le- at least a little bit. I like, mean, maybe he worked out at some point, but, like, he still, when he finally goes around and does it, it's like, oh, wow, wow, okay, yep, this is happening. Th- this, hmm. I love this because it's such a lonely note, and I think it's such a adulthood thing of, like, realising or it coming true for you that there aren't there isn't anyone else like there's you and that's who you've that's who's going to take care of you it's, there's only you i think it's such a moment a lot of people will get at some point in their lives where it's like it's it's just me in here basically and i i really love that kind of gulf of loneliness but also kind of self-assurance of well you know this is what i've got so i have to become strong i have to learn to do x y and z you know i i'm all i am and I've only got me. As much as he's in a marriage, the only constant in his life is him. He's he's going to be in every scene of his life, only him. And I just love that kind of tragedy and melancholy moment of young Henry having to realise eventually, you know, and by the fact that older Henry realises it, that there's no one else. It's just him. It's the moment of realising that your parents are people. Exactly, and, exactly. But done through you being your parent right yeah you saw that there was this aspirational figure and then you get to a point and you realize oh well, i'm that figure and i'm shit yeah they they were always just human yeah and this is the whole if you don't vibe with this sort of thing which is you know totally appropriate if you don't but if you don't i'm not sure there's going to be a time later when it might start to vibe for you because this is sort of this is the big yeah. idea big humany woomany relatable moments processed through this time travel high concept that's the bread and butter of the story here and i know for some people the way a story like this works the way it's told they might see it as just a big structural gimmick or refer to it with some term like that but i think yes it is a big playful writerly structure thing call it a gimmick if you want sure but when people use terms like structural gimmick and things like that i kind of think like yeah aren't we really just talking about form when, when we say that right exactly that's the thing. Structural gimmick's quite a um, dismissive way of just doing yeah. something different with stories, right? We've got a very set, naturalistic, linear way of telling stories in 
cinema. Memento isn't a structural gimmick. That's the story. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a structure. <laughs> yeah, it's just structure. It's form. It, it's daring to be a bit different. Yeah. I agree that there's some stories where something is treated so lightly and kind of randomly that it feels very gimmicky. But I think we're so used to stories working in a certain way, not always linearly. Like there's some non-linear structures that are so normalized, like, a, you know, an in-media res opening that it, it, it's, it seems completely expected and normal to us that when we get stories in different structures, we feel gimmick because it's out of the ordinary. But often it's not, it's like it's completely the heart of the piece and it's completely built around this. And therefore, I feel like gimmick is the wrong term and it's just the form of, yeah. of what's happening here. And this story, like you can't put this story in order. It would make no thematic sense and it would make no sense in general. This is and which order? Whose order? Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And most stories, right? It's, 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 why, I, it's why I'm so in love with um, non-linear form-twisting stuff is that I, I'm pretty sure this is a Moffat quote as well, but no one remembers a story in the order it happened yeah right? yeah real life isn't one scene and then another scene and then another i think moff may have even moff wrote a whole mini story about that i think yeah 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 we don't think in order that's why i yeah it's he's not the only person to think this but it's why non-linear stuff can work even more logically to our brains in some ways it's because like we were saying earlier how cleverly the episode kind of threads the needle of like a character will say a line and that it'll connect to the next scene even though like it's not a literal cut to the next scene but it makes sense that our brains would go there now it's because our brains are always you know traveling forward and that'll be through memories and that'll be through something in the present so it makes sense for stories to work that way as well if, if it can be done well the other the speaking of structure what really interests me and i know moffat's talked about this a lot when he's talking about what's different between the novel to the film to the tv show because he says TV proceeds as a series of short stories. Each episode has to be complete in and of itself. You need a little three-act story each week. So sometimes you have to move things around. And then he's talking about how his love of the book persevering is going to be what matters and that he's keeping so many details correct that fans of the book will recognize what he's doing. He's telling the same story, but structurally stuff is being moved around to make episodes all work as their own three-act stories. Uh, I don't know about you, Oliver, but I was actually surprised... Was it just me? Did this feel really faithful to the book? I thought way more would be changed. Like, obviously, he changed the order of some stuff, but this felt really close to the first three chapters uh, to me. Yeah, I don't remember the exact structure that well, um, enough to say, really. But it does, it feels, it also feels very episodic. Yeah. I felt at the end of the episode, oh, that's an episode of TV. It's That's a little story. Um in 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 a way that I don't with a lot of entirely linear TV, um, yeah. but it is it, it it feels like it's doing those small rearrangements and the the structural stuff. Um, it's interesting that it's adapting it almost scene for scene. Yeah, but just 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 using the adaptation to reorder things slightly and. Um, do some do, do do that structural perspective stuff. It's an interesting way of doing an adaptation. Well, he said, "I love this." He says, "Sometimes you see an adaptation of a book, and it just feels as though you've chopped up the book into six hours and fed it through." I don't think that honors the original. You've got to really make it a beast that survives in its new environment. And television is a different experience from a novel. You're not correcting it. You're not fixing what was once wrong. You are adapting it to a new landscape. Hopefully the television show feels the same as reading the book. 
I love that approach to adaptation, but it's not about literally reproducing it. It's about how can I do this effect in this new form, which might mean changing a lot, but it's about trying to process it in the most alive way you can for the new for the new format. Dracula three. Yeah. Or um Harnesses Roar of the Worlds, I think, was was doing a similar thing where he's changing a lot of the letters, but I think it's really processing how to make the book work as TV and as TV made now. Um, I love that form of an adaptation. Well, on that note, is there anything you're interested to see if the TV show might change or approach differently or anything like that in the coming weeks? I'm interested to see how much it engages with the grooming. That angle on the story um, feels like something uh, I they're very much shooting down. It's not a story about a groomer and someone being groomed, but it feels like you have to engage with the question to even just to shoot it down, right? It's such a big and serious conversation that I think on whatever terms the show is going to have it, it's going to be later. And so, of course, we'll have it later too. I would predict. (laughs) Yeah. I, I would predict Henry framing himself as a groomer later on. Um self-deprecating, look how much I've fucked you up kind of thing. Moffat says The version of Henry that goes back in time, the grown-up version, he's a very responsible man so he has tremendously strict rules about this. If one of them changes the other, Claire changes Henry. Claire is exactly the same person as a little girl as she is when you see her in her 70s. Exactly the same person. Henry flows round Claire like a river round a rock. He's just uh, he, he makes himself the man she wants him to be because he loves her. That sounds mildly like a cope. The idea that she's the same person as a child when she's an adult. I mean, what? Does that even make any sense? Even the phrasing of tremendously strict rules is like odd implications, I think, were very not intended by Moffat there. Yeah, good men don't need rules, so I've heard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I love this idea of people reforming each other intentionally or otherwise, but yeah, obviously this is being processed in a weird way through the child stuff, and we'll get more into that as the show does. Do you have anything to comment about the music before we finish? Because I know you were a fan of it, Neo, how they handled the soundtrack. Well, it's not any of Moffat's usual composers. It's this new composer for him from America uh, that did the Pacific. I I, I was bowled over by it. It was so old-fashioned. It felt like an old movie to me. It was so whimsical at times and it was so propulsive at times and it was so loud it was in you know i'm a big murray gold fan so i like music to be loud and in my face and it really was for so much of this i love that i was felt so romantic to me i was really really taken by it i felt so swallowed up by how in my face it was yeah it was pulling a lot of weight in sequences with no speech so yeah and it was doing that quite well like just in terms of keeping control of the show and just doing the storytelling when there wasn't anyone blabbing over the top of it it's the easiest way to win me over to a show is, is just by having really great music like that. And so I was super engaged by it. Oliver, what did you think of it? I have to pay more attention. I didn't notice at all. I have to pay more attention. Oh, I didn't go. particularly notice the um, the performances either, to be honest. I was very focused on the script. and It's a dense piece of television. Yeah, for sure. It is. I, oh, man. I just like good TV. I like TV that I can sit and think about afterwards. Because I, I was very aware of the, I guess, controversy around the casting. And then just just got the characters and didn't really think about the performances. Um, and didn't think about the music, which I guess means it was working, right? 
I'll pay more attention yeah. to the next one. Um, well, basically, what's your overall evaluation of the first episode, uh, guys? I, based what, on what you said about the dialogue, I basically get why someone who doesn't like Moffat wouldn't like this. It is very, uh, marriage is just a flat circle. Um, but (laughs) I like that shit. I like the philosophizing. I like the form of it. I, I, I found it powerful and effective and exciting. And I want TV to be more like this. And I'm excited for the next one. Geek, what do you think? I think it's as confident and uh, exciting and compelling as an introduction to this kind of story as you could hope for. Yeah, I think it's going quite well. Yeah, I think if you like lyrical dialogue that maybe doesn't sound like real people speaking, and if you like what you can call structural gimmickry, and if you can stand a little bit of weird gender stuff, then you're going to love this. If any of that raises alarm bells for you, you're probably not going to love this. Well, that's our discussion for the first week, for the first episode, there are so many topics we didn't get into because we've got five more discussions to have. Some of the stuff we're going to touch on in future weeks is what exactly the form of this show is in terms of how many episodes and how many seasons and what it's doing with the book exactly. I want to get a little more into the nature of what it's doing with time. Uh, compare it with the movie a bit um, in a way that makes sense for people who haven't seen the movie. Like, I don't know if you two have seen it. I have not. Nope. The show is reacting against the movie in some ways. I'll explain later, (laughs) as they they say. It's quite interesting, (laughs) especially Moffat's comments on the film. Uh, What the show is doing with Claire specifically, this is the other big complaint I saw about the show, mostly specifically from book readers. The show is rewiring Claire in a way, and Rose Leslie, the actress, and Moffat have both talked about this, and so I'm going to get more into that into future weeks because it's really, really interesting. I also want to get more into the novelist herself, who's a very interesting woman, and her relationship with Moffat and how they came to know each other and what they think of each other is really interesting. We'll talk about that more in future weeks. What the novelist is doing now as well is really interesting. Um, this will make more sense later as well. And of course, <laughs> this story is going in super interesting places. And so over the next five episodes, we're going to have so much to talk about there. Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting show and I look forward to talking about it more and watching more of it. Can't wait for Henry Sast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Great. And we'll get more into the complexity of the romance stuff, the direction of the show, a lot more into the aesthetic stuff, both the visuals and the music of the show. We'll definitely talk more about that. We'll get deeper into the dynamics of the characters and more characters are going to come, of course. There's all sorts of stuff to discuss as we get into the episodes that are still coming to us. Listeners, thanks for listening to our discussion and we'd really like to see your thoughts on the show and what we had to say about it this week as well. So please comment away. We always love to see your thoughts too. So let us know what you think. And again, thank you very much for listening.